but we uh, you might ask me why are we reading or studying the book of Jude well my answer is pretty simple I think that <laughs> Walton says because it's in the Bible <laughs> yes it is and I think that there is some really good deep stuff here for Christians that maybe sometimes we don't take advantage of or we just don't talk about or we miss because Jude doesn't seem to be a popular text to teach out of in the modern world. I think the reason Jude has gone out of popularity uh, along with maybe some parts of Second Peter and, and some other passages in the New Testament is because there is actual criticism to be done uh, at times like there's some uh, calling people to check whether or not the things being done in the church are right and good and there is an attitude or a spirit in the world around us and maybe in the church that says criticism's always bad you know we shouldn't be critical we shouldn't have criticism we don't want to be negative in church and so I would like to this week and then in two weeks from now uh, when we We'll do the second part of looking at this book. I would like to look at the book of Jude and try to unwrap or maybe take off this veil that says that it has to be a critical and negative book. I don't think that it has to be critical and negative, although it has important criticism for the church. There's some really important things in here. So in just a moment, we're going to start reading the first and only chapter of Jude. Uh, but before we do, I wanted to remind and encourage everybody uh, I assume most of you have heard about this by now, but today our congregation started off on a reading plan together, a journey that will last for the next six months to read the New Testament. Now a lot of times when we uh, hear someone launches a reading plan for the new year, read the Bible in a year, or whatever that can uh, sound great at first, and it becomes a little daunting to do whatever, nine or ten chapters a day or whatever it is. And so this has got to be the easiest reading plan in the history of the New Testament, or of the Bible, because this is like one, or at most, two chapters a day. And um, what we're going to try to do with this as a congregation is really ask as we read, what is God asking me to obey in this? What is he calling me to through this reading? Uh, we can read for factual learning. Uh, I hope in studying the book of Jude, we're going to learn some facts or discuss some facts that will be useful but we can also read simply with the spirit of obedience, of wanting to know what is God calling me to obey in, in these chapters. And so the ministry team is doing a few things uh, to try to make this an enjoyable process for the church over the next few months. And the first is that we're trying something that we, I don't think we've ever tried here before. We're launching a ministry blog. And so um, some of you go, okay, well, how's that help me? Well, we're going to try to have um, some encouraging blogs, maybe with some insight uh, each week or a couple times a week uh, to, that are on pace with the reading schedule. Uh, different ministers hopefully will take turns. Uh, I may end up doing more of them than the rest. I don't know. That might depend on desire, who feels like they want to do some blogging. But we've set the blog up already. Uh, it's already uh, up, and the first post is on there, but really the first post just says, here's the reading plan, and it starts on Sunday, January 8th. We're going to try to use that as a forum uh, where church members can just check in. They can read some of the thoughts and, uh, and devotions and just insights that the ministry staff is sharing from the weekly readings as we stay on pace with the congregation. 
And then that'll also be a forum where we can uh, comment or people can share prayer requests and things like that. But this little blog, you can find the link to it on the front of our usual webpage, the bencoc.org, and you just scroll down and there's a, there's a hyperlink there that very clearly says the blog. And so you can find it right there. The second thing that we've included on here that I hope will be some encouragement and some help to the church, and maybe, you know, a lot of times our Sunday night crowd is pretty proficient at Bible study, and you guys have a lot of the tools that you need, but maybe this will be something that you use, you share this uh, with another friend or, or with a grandchild or a child who is looking for some type of, of study resource or help. But on the very back of this brochure, uh, this almost sounds like an advertisement, but I promise you we're not making any money from these people or anything. Uh, I believe that this Faith Life account that we wrote about on the back here can be a really useful study tool. Uh, so Faith Life is a company that makes the Logos Bible software program, which is a program you can use to do uh, to search the Bible. It has very powerful research tools. But they have a simple app called Faith Life Study Bible. And it's the one that's right in the middle of the icons. It's the one that's green and white. And what that app does is it allows you to always have the Bible text open on half of the screen of your phone or iPad. And the other half of the screen are study notes. So it's essentially an electronic study Bible. You know, if you're familiar with using a study Bible, it's got notes on the bottom. That's really easy to use because it always stays in the right place. It always keeps your notes and they stay synced as you scroll through the Bible text or type in a Bible text. It'll jump to that location in the notes. And they give away with the app the Faith Life Study Bible uh, material, which is one of the world's largest, it's one of the most articles and most uh, hyperlinks and, and extra information as a study Bible that's available anywhere. You know, they can't put all this stuff in print. Your Bible would be volumes. And so they have this immense amount of study Bible information that's inside the app. I use Logos Bible software in my sermon prep. Uh, anybody can use Faith Life Study Bible app for daily reading and stuff like that. And then the third thing is our church has, has gone out on a limb this year and spent some money to provide Logos Mobile Education. And Logos Mobile Education is a series of videos that are essentially college-level courses, pre-recorded and all ready to go, and you can stream them, and it's provided for members of our congregation or people, individuals that you share it with, for free. Now, the way that you can find these, the way to get into these videos, is you have to make a Faith Life account uh, and then join the church's page. It almost looks like a Facebook page, except for it's a Faith Life page, and we have a group on there. And the instructions for this are on this little article. But once you join the church's page, you can log into faithlifetv.com and you can watch these college-level courses about everything from Old Testament books to New Testament books, archaeology, apologetics, uh, all kinds of different topics. And so it's really, really good stuff. Um, like any study resource, use your brain and use your Bible, right? Not all of it is going to be the one right perspective. There's lots of different perspectives in study material. But these are just some great resources. And I take time on Sunday night to mention them and to encourage you to know about it because either you may benefit from it or you may know somebody who really could benefit from it. Okay, if you have any questions about them, ask me at any time. I'd be happy to help you figure out how to use those. Now, before we jump into Jude, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin reading from the text. 
Lord God, our Father, we thank you for this assembly that's here together tonight. Thank you for the people here that are called out by you, that are called out to become the church. We came from a variety of backgrounds. Uh, many of us came from other areas of the country or other areas of the world. Uh, we have different interests in so many ways, and yet you have given us this commonness in Christ. You have given us a love for you based on your own work, your saving work through Jesus to save our souls and to, to build us into a church. And God, we thank you and praise you for that. No one else could have come up for the plan of what church would look like except for you. And God, we are well aware, um, not as well as you, but we're well aware that often uh, we break down the system that you've built. We break the church. Uh, we introduce our own opinions. We introduce sin. Uh, we have factions. We have quarreling, all these types of things. And we thank you that right now that doesn't characterize the church life in Bentonville. Uh, we thank you that right now this church life here at this place is characterized by hope and by faithfulness and by trust, by shepherds that we love and admire, by a ministry team that works hard and works well together as a team, uh, by deacons and ministry team leaders and Bible class teachers and volunteers who give time and diligently serve through love. God, but we know that even in such a good church we still bring some brokenness. And we pray as we read the text tonight that you would help us to gain rich and deep insight into some of the things that we can do inside of our hearts and inside of our church community to help keep the church what you want it to be. We pray that you would do these things through the power of your spirit in this community, that you would give us the ability, which is really your ability, and give us the wisdom, which is really your wisdom, and the knowledge, which is yours, to help this church to be well into the future, a joyful, loving body of Christ in Bentonville, witnessing as a light here in this community. God, we lay all these things before your throne. You started it all, you'll finish it all, and you've already finished our salvation in Jesus. For that, we thank you. It's in his name that we pray, and together we all say, amen. Okay, the book of Jude. Now, here's, here's the first thing uh, that I see when I open up the book of Jude in my electronic Bible. And this may or may not be in your Bible. Uh, oftentimes a study Bible or something will have a little caption or a synopsis at the top of the book or at the beginning of the book that says like, this book is basically about whatever. And so in my electronic study Bible, this is the one sentence summary of the book of Jude that comes, you know, this is just somebody's idea here that comes kind of right at the top of the book. It says, in this book... Jude gave a brief but fiery expose of heretics. Okay, so this is the summary of Jude, and this is why, maybe why it gets a bad rap. In this book, Jude gave a brief but fiery expose of heretics. And so you read that, and the things that cross my mind, at least, are the good old-fashioned hellfire and brimstone sermons of a bygone era, whenever there'd be a lot of pulpit pounding and a, and a lot of calling to Jesus and a lot of fire and, and, and naming what is heresy and what isn't heresy. So uh, a few years ago, I got interested in this book and started studying it in preparation to teach a class for the young adults, and we did about six weeks in the book of Jude. Well... One of the things that was fascinating to me was that as I actually read Jude and studied Jude, 
I'm not convinced that it's quite as fiery or quite as heretical as people have given it the rap to be. Now, there's certainly some problems here, but we're going to read it together, and we'll see how much of it we get through tonight. We're going to get through part of it, and we'll do part of it in two weeks. But start with me in verse 1, and, and I want you to be thinking, using your minds. God gave you minds on purpose to use as we read. I want you to be using your minds, thinking about, identifying what, what are the issues, what's the problem that Jude is addressing. And by the way, this is a bonus fact. Uh, this book isn't actually called Jude. I mean, it is in your English Bibles here, but it's not actually called Jude in the original. It's called Judas. The name was Judas. And the only reason that they named it Jude, the early church started calling it Jude, and they dropped the S off the end, was to differentiate. They didn't want it to get a really bad rap, as if maybe Judas the traitor wrote it. And so, so they started calling it Jude because nobody wanted to name their kids Judas after he betrays Jesus. So this is the book of Judas that we call Jude. Okay, here we go. Verse 1. Judas, or Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Uh, to those who have been called who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. There's a few important words here in the introduction that I hope that you'll take note of. Uh, the words called, loved, and kept. These words seem to be saying that Jude, as he looks at the church that he's writing to, looks at a group of people whose salvation is secure. Now sure, there's some problems in the church and there's some people that we're about to read about whose salvation is not secure. But to the group at large, to the church that he's trying to encourage, he sees them as being called and loved and kept. And this word kept is going to come up a few other times in the book as we get near the end of this short letter. Uh, so if you look down further towards the end, uh, you will see both the church keeping themselves in God's love and Jesus keeping them. Uh, we'll get to there as we read down further. Uh, the second verse says, Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. So again, a blessing from Judas as he writes to the church, to people that he sees as being uh, faithful, people that he sees as being saved. Judas is probably the brother of Jesus. Some of you have heard this before. Maybe most of you have heard this before. How many of you have ever heard that, that Jude who wrote this is the half-brother of Jesus? Not all of you, but many. Okay, it's probably true, although we don't know for sure. But he says in verse 1, he's a brother of James and a servant of Jesus Christ. And the early church tradition from very early on was that this was probably Jesus' brother. So this is fascinating that this is a guy who during Jesus' earthly ministry was opposed to him. You remember that his brothers come to him at one time thinking he is out of his mind and try to take him home. And Jesus says, my mother and sister and brothers are those who, what is it, Walton? Who obey me, yeah. And so Jesus has redefined what his family is because his family has rejected his ministry at one point. And yet here later on, it seems like this brother realized who he had grown up with and what he had grown up around and he had converted not only to the point where he was, um, where he was loyal, but he uses this word a servant or a slave in verse 1, to say he's fully committed to Jesus. The greeting that he uses in verse 2 is pretty fascinating. And this Judas guy, who's probably the half-brother of Jesus, would have grown up in a very Jewish world. Unlike Paul, who writes to a Greek context much of the time, some of the New Testament letters have a really distinctive Jewish flavor. The letters of Peter 
seem to have some Jewish flavor. This letter does. James has very Jewish flavor. The letter of James was probably the other uh, brother, half-brother of Jesus, the one that's referenced at the beginning of this letter. And so what we're going to find is that this guy, Judas, has the Jewish worldview, but he's a pretty intelligent guy. He is studied well. He references a lot of things that would have been pretty well known to other Jews as they studied the scriptures, as they studied their history, and as they made arguments about what is faithfulness to God and what isn't. And the first clue that this guy isn't just sort of your uh, average book writer, but that he has really done some research and that he knows a lot about Jewish arguing, is that in verse 2 he uses a greeting that is unfamiliar to most of the rest of the Bible. So look again at these words in verse 2. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance, or be multiplied to you. Okay, these words are all common New Testament words. You can find all three of these words in almost every epistle in the New Testament. Mercy, peace, love, like this is Christian lingo, right? The fascinating thing is that this greeting isn't found in the other letters. Some of these words are, but never in this order, never this formulation. And greetings are an important part of identifying where letter writers in the ancient world had their influence because they would model their openings and their closings after other writings that had influence over them. The closest thing that we find in the ancient world that predates this letter to this particular greeting is a little-known pseudepigraphal book from Jewish history called Second Baruch. How, anybody here ever read Second Baruch? Yeah, not me either. Okay. It's parts of it, not all of it. Second Baruch isn't necessarily a book that you would expect to be quoted in the New Testament. Uh, it's not even canonized in the Jewish scriptures, right? It's not in our Old Testament. But this man, Judas, is pretty uh, astute and learned, and he quotes, or he at least makes allusions, to quite a few things that are not in our Old Testament, that come from other areas. So this is just the first clue to that. And it's fascinating. Some of the things that he draws from, we would have maybe never considered that they would end up in the New Testament. All right, let's move on now into uh, the main part of the book. I, I don't have this for all of you, but I can give this to any of you who want it. Whenever I've gone through studying the book of Jude, it sometimes helps me to color code things and to try to keep some of the arguments in order. And one of the things that I just love about this book is how simple and repetitive Jude's arguing is. And so we're going to be able to discern or figure out what his point is by looking at the repetition. And so verse 3 is going to be a standalone part. And I want you to look in your Bibles at verse 3. And if you're marking or taking notes, if you like to annotate in your Bible as you go, or if you like to highlight in your digital Bible in color, uh, I just highlighted this in yellow uh, because that's not a color I used for the other sections that are coming. But this first verse, verse 3, has a parallel in verses 20 through 23. And when I say parallel, this is what I mean. These are encouraging words directly to the Christians to whom he's writing. These are some of the words that are 
uh, for them. Although the argument in the rest of the book will help them discern and make decisions about what is faithfulness and what isn't faithfulness in the church. So verse 3 reads this way. Dear friends or beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So to the church that's receiving this letter, I wanted to write to you this word of encouragement and joy about the salvation that we share, but I must write about some of these problems. They're very important problems. Now, if you read verses 20 through 23, this is the next section that I had also marked with the same color. So in my case, it was yellow. But this is going to be the next point that he addresses near the end of the letter, the church again. This is one of the most compact letters in the New Testament. And it's fascinating that he really has very little to say to the Christians who he's encouraging. Most of what he writes about are the problem people in the middle. So look at verses 20 through 23. But you, dear friends, or again, beloved, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves. Remember I said we'd find the word keep near the end of the book. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Now do you notice what is not in the two addresses to the church? These are the two passages of address directly to the church. What is not in those passages in this brief, fiery expose of heretics? You're allowed to answer. This is kind of a mesh of sermon and class. What is not there? What would you expect to find in an expose, fiery expose, a good old-fashioned hellfire and brimstone about heretics? And by the way, what's a heretic? In case that's not clear for anyone, what's a heretic? Someone who teaches a heresy. What's a heresy? <laughs> Some type of false teaching, right? Some type of false teaching. Interesting that the word false teacher is never actually used in the book of Jude. But it is used in the book of Second Peter in chapter 2, which is the closest parallel in the New Testament to this book. Second Peter uses a lot of the same examples and allusions that Jude does. Makes a lot of the same points that Jude does. But it seems like it was a different setting. There was a different context and some different audience. Okay, I'll give you the answer because nobody is answering this question yet. What is not in these two addresses? What is not in these two sections are any instructions for the church about how they're supposed to call out or oust or deal with the heretics. There's really not any hellfire and brimstone for the church to enact in these two passages. Look at it again. Verse 2, I was eager to, you to write about the salvation we share. I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith. Okay, so contend for the faith really has a pretty positive connotation when you read what comes at the end in 20 through 23. Contend for the faith, in other words, in, in this way. But you, back in verse 20, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, how do you contend for the faith? 
by building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. How do you contend for the faith? Well, by praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love. So how do you contend for the, uh, for the faith? By not being led astray and by keeping yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Look at verse 22. Be merciful to those who doubt. So for the ones who are struggling particularly through doubt, not necessarily through heresy here, but through doubt, be merciful. Save others by snatching them from the fire. So at any point that you can rescue somebody, from the punishment that would be waiting for them that could come, snatch them from the fire. Like, do everything you can to save them before it's too late. To others, show mercy, mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. And so all of the words for the church, all the action items here for the church, all of the things that the church are supposed to internalize and do about the problem really sound pretty positive, don't they? Now, that doesn't make the problem in the middle any less severe. The problems that we're about to read about in the middle of the book are condemning. I mean, they're really bad problems. And they're things that the church has to be aware of even now. But to make sure that we keep the mindset as we read through these, that the way the church contends for the faith, at least from the perspective of Jude, there are other New Testament voices about these issues, is often or primarily or first to contend through holy faith, praying in the Spirit, keeping in God's love, showing mercy, mercy, mercy. Okay, let's back up now and let's read the middle of this letter. We're going to read verses 4 through 19. And I think that we've got a comfortable amount of time to do this, even though we might not get into all of the smaller points and minutia of this letter. You're going to get a feel tonight for the problem and for the pattern of how Jude deals with this problem. Now, as I was color-coding my reading, I used orange and blue for the middle section. And you can do whatever you want if you're taking notes or if you're scribbling in your margins, but I used orange for every verse that, at least it seemed to me, that he was describing the problem people at the current time or at the present time. So he keeps going back and forth in this letter from describing the current issue and then using examples from the past, examples from the Old Testament or other Jewish literature to highlight why this behavior is a problem in the church of God. And so every time he was speaking about the modern people, the current people that are troublemakers, I used orange. You can do it however you want. But the first verse that it seems to me addresses the present problem is verse 4. Let's read that together. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Now I'd like for you all to help me in verse 4 and highlight what are the different characterizations of these certain people that is a problem. What are the first things that he's mentioned here in verse 4 that these people have introduced to the church that's unhealthy? What was one of them? I heard somebody, but... Yeah, they're godless. They're ungodly people. They're ungodly. They're godless. Okay, good. What else? Yeah, they pervert grace into a license for immorality. 
It sounds familiar, uh, something that Paul addressed in Corinth when people were saying, you know, well, was it Corinth or was it Rome when he says, don't use your freedom as a license for sin? It's Gal- oh, it's Galatians when he says that, yeah. It sounds familiar, though. Very, very common New Testament problem, isn't it? Okay, perverting the grace of God into a license for immorality. That's a problem. What's the next problem? I've got four of them. What? Yeah, they deny Jesus, our sovereign and Lord. That's a pretty big, obvious problem, right? Okay. Any other ones here? Yeah, they're amongst us, and it's in secret, right? The secret slipping in amongst us. So there's something that is sneaky that's going on. Uh, there is something that is intentional but hidden, and that's a problem too. Okay, all right, so this verse 4 is about the people in the current setting. Here you go to the Christians that Jude's writing to. Uh, this is, these are the people, characterizing the people. Now verses 5 through 7 is where Jude then turns to some past examples for the first time. He's going to do this pattern uh, five times, and then he rounds it out by by talking about the people causing problems once more before he's done. But five times he's going to address the problem in the current setting with these people, and then he's going to give examples from the past. So five through seven is going to explain or describe uh, some of the things from, from previous events in history that characterize the problems of these people. Though you already know all of this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt. Okay, so the Jews would have been very familiar with this story. Early Christians would have learned it even if they were Greek pretty early on. The Exodus. But later destroyed those who did not believe. So we've already seen that these people don't believe in Jesus and they're ungodly. And he's warning right now, we know from history... We know from past experience that people who don't believe will end up being destroyed. It isn't okay to just let this continue on in the church or think that even though this has slipped in among you, that this type of action is going to be, uh, to turn out well for them. We know from the past what God does to unbelief. In verse 6, even the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And so you see some of the same characteristics that were in verse 4 played out by these stories that he retells in verses 5 through seven. You see perversion, you see immorality, you see denying God and faithlessness. In these Old Testament stories, in these old Jewish stories, that illustrates for Jude a clear reason, a motivation, not to allow this to continue in the church, and certainly not to allow it to happen to you. Now here's my next question for all of us as we kind of slip back into class mode or whatever this question and answer part of it. Everything in verses 5 through 7, does that all seem really familiar to you from the Old Testament? Pretty much, right? The Exodus, pretty familiar. Sodom and Gomorrah, pretty familiar. What about these angels? Ezekiel 28 hits on it some. Okay. Would you have gotten this, this full or this 
this much information about those angels from Ezekiel 28? You get most of it, right? Okay. Did you know that this was a common topic of Jewish um, argument, of Jewish study, of Jewish curiosity around the time that Jesus was on the earth? We have a lot of the writings from the Jews at this period in time where they were questioning how did these angels that disobeyed God get to where they were? And how do these Old Testament stories like Ezekiel 28 or the sons of God, remember the Nephilim from Genesis, how did all of this work out? The Jews were extremely curious about this. In other words, you get a little insight into the world of Judas as you read this. This was a period in time in which one of the current and common questions was how does God deal with these angels and beings of authority? People had a lot to say about it. People had a lot of opinions about it. And they weren't really shy in talking about their opinions. So we get a hint here that the first warning, even though maybe I've given away a little bit of what's about to come, is that these people who are very interested in the fate of angelic beings need to be warned from what we already know from the Old Testament and from other Jewish writing and talking and discussion that even angelic beings that disobey God aren't going to get free without being punished. I mean, it's going to go bad for them too. So this is just interesting and kind of insightful. Anything else about 5 through 7 that you wanted to point out or comment on before we move into the next cycle? Good for now. Okay. All right, now verse 8. Verse 8 is the next uh, beginning of the cycle. Verse 8 is where Judas, again, speaks about the people that are currently the problem. And so he says, In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these people, these modern certain individuals that have slipped in, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. Okay, so what are a few of the other things that have now been introduced? What else are they doing? What are the other problems that you see here in verse 8? Yeah, first of all, relying on dreams. And we don't know for sure exactly what these dreams were like or what he means. But they've got some type of individual insight that apparently isn't being checked with Scripture or challenged in the community of the church, and on the strength of just their dreams, they're coming up with some of these false teachings or some of these uh, problems. Okay, what else? Yeah, they pollute their own bodies. You know, again, we don't necessarily know for sure what sin that is, but it sure sounds like they're engaging in some type of sexual immorality. Another problem in the ancient world and the modern one. Okay, so ungodly people, strength of their dreams, they're making these opinions and decisions. They pollute their own bodies, and what else? They reject authority. Okay, always a problem in the church of God. When there's not honor for authority, that's a sign of big trouble in the church of God. And what else? Yeah, and they blaspheme or heap abuse on celestial beings. Okay, now this is an interesting part. This is kind of, I guess, where I almost gave all of this away just a minute ago, right? They're so interested at this time in history and these angels and what God was going to do with these angels. They had a lot of opinions about it. And apparently, these problem people in the church that's being addressed are heaping abuse or blaspheming celestial beings. They're saying things that they ought not to say 
about spiritual powers. Maybe about God and Jesus and himself, but maybe also about angels and others because angels have already been mentioned and they're going to come up again here shortly. You know, sometimes we see some things like this even now that uh, make me a little uncomfortable. Like when people uh, act as if they've got power or authority over spiritual powers. And there's going to be a warning in here about that that I think is good for all of us to remember. But in particular, these people are blaspheming and talking in ways about celestial beings, about spiritual powers in ways that they shouldn't. Okay, so now in the cycle, this is the current problem. Verse 9, he's going to again reference an old story, a story from the past to make the point about why this is a problem. Verse 9, even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said... The Lord rebuke you. All right. How many of you are familiar with this Old Testament story? (laughs) Just some laughter. (laughs) How many of you are familiar with this Old Testament story? I mean, part of it, right? Part of it. Uh, did, Did Moses die? Yeah. And who buried him? According to the Old Testament, God buried his body. And so where does this idea that Michael, the archangel, is disputing with the devil about the body come from? Well, I told you already that Judas was a a well-studied, astute, learned man. And we don't have a copy of this story in antiquity. But we have a reference to it in the early church fathers' writings. Some of the early church fathers mentioned that the story about Michael and the devil and Moses' body was recorded in a book called The Assumption of Moses. We don't have that book. Nobody has ever found a book called The Assumption of Moses. But there is a book called The Testimony of Moses that's one of the uh, Jewish, non-canonized books, pseudepigraphal book, questionable authorship, that has some Old Testament stories and ponderings and meanderings in it. And the end of that book is missing. And so there's speculation that maybe this testament of Moses is the missing assumption of Moses. It doesn't really matter because we don't know. But isn't it interesting that in the world that he's writing to, that Judas is using an argument that doesn't come from Scripture to make an argument about how to be the scriptural church. He's using an argument that comes from their tradition, one that he was very familiar with, one that we're not so familiar with. This should probably make us a little bit uncomfortable. And yet, Judas is an inspired author of Scripture, and so God gave him some insight, apparently, into which part of this story was accurate. If it wasn't for this little comment right here, we would never have known that there was a spiritual battle that was waged over Moses' body. I wonder how many other things, just as a curiosity, we don't know about. But thinking and worrying too much about what we don't know can lead us to problems too. Here, though, we see this insight where this well-learned, well-respected half-brother of Jesus makes this comment. And And it refers to a book that we don't even have. And he says that Michael disputed with the devil. And so here's the result of this story, or here's the point of this little story. He says that Michael, who would have been considered a person or a being of great power and responsibility as an archangel of God, did not himself dare to condemn the devil for slander, but said the Lord rebuke you. 
Now, some versions in the past have had difficulty, well, all of them have some difficulty translating this Greek because it's a little bit hairy. The question in the Greek here is, is uh, Michael um, not condemning the devil directly? Or is Michael uh, refusing, as it reads here in the NIV, did not himself condemn him for slander? Uh, like, like, what's going on? Is Michael refusing to say to the devil uh, that, you know, you're wrong? Or is he refusing to say to the devil that the devil is slandering uh, Moses, slandering the body of Moses? I guess it's some pretty confusing Greek. And so the way that the newer NIV reads here, the way they've decided to translate it is this way. Michael did not himself dare to condemn the devil for slander. So even though it's obvious that the devil is slandering, it's obvious that the devil is speaking wrongly about Moses, and I guess, we don't have the story, but I guess you'd have to assume something like this. The devil's trying to take his body saying, I deserve to get it because he was a sinner or something like that. He's slandering Moses. That Michael refuses to even condemn the devil for that activity. And he only says, the Lord rebuke you. And yet, in verse 10, these people slander whatever they do not understand. And so you've got this characteristic of these people that have slipped into the church who will speak against things that they don't understand. They'll speak against celestial beings. They'll act as if they have power over them. And the example that we didn't even know happened until now, we wouldn't have even known had happened unless it was for this little book, a good spiritual power, an archangel of God, refuses to even tell Satan that he's condemned or that he stands condemned. He says, I'll leave that up to God. I'm not going to judge things that aren't mine to judge, but I'll let God rebuke the devil. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. And the rest of verse 10 reads this way, The very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. And so he kind of gives them a backhand by saying, the things they don't understand, they speak about. But the things they do understand are just animal instincts. They just understand sinful, emotional attitudes. Okay, verse 11 is the next cycle. Verse 11 goes again back to the Old Testament to give an example of why these types of attitudes are wrong. Woe to them, they've taken the way of Cain. An Old Testament story we should all be pretty familiar with, who murdered his brother. They've rushed for profit into Balaam's error. Another Old Testament story that we're somewhat familiar with, but maybe not quite as well as Cain. What was it that Balaam did that was so wrong? Does anyone remember? Encouraged marriage to foreign women. What else? I heard something else. No? Okay. Yeah, he was, he was being paid to curse the Israelites. Now, God didn't let him actually curse them, did he? In, in the way the story reads in the Old Testament, every time he tries to curse them, it comes out as a blessing. And he says, I can only say what God allows me to say. And yet, we get this insight here and elsewhere in the New Testament that Balaam was willing to cause problems for the Israelites for profit. He was willing to accept money to lead them astray. And Walton's right. His idea, because he couldn't prophesy falsely about them, was, well, since I can't prophesy badly about them, just introduce them to foreign women and that'll lead them astray. They've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Do you remember what Korah did? 
rebelled against authority, said to Moses and his siblings that they weren't the true leaders, got eaten up in a big, uh, the ground split open and swallowed them up. Pretty cool story if you like that kind of stuff. Okay, uh, verse 12, back to the modern people, the current problem. Verse 12, as the cycle continues. These people are blemishes at your love feasts. That word really means an underwater reef. So they're like an underwater reef that's going to wreck the ship. Uh, they're blemishes or, or reefs ready to wreck your love feasts. They're eating with you without the slightest qualm. They don't even feel guilt for being among you. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They're clouds without rain. Now he goes through a series of things that are useless. Clouds without rain, useless. Blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit, useless, right? Uprooted, twice dead, useless and useless. Maybe only good for firewood. They're wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. Uh, and then wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. This is kind of interesting where he says wandering stars. The term here is the old astrological term from the Greek that is uh, the name for planets. When they began to discover planets in the sky, what they named them was wanderers because they could see that they weren't um, always going on the same course or their course wasn't, like they weren't there every night. They would change courses and until they figured out how the orbits worked, they called them wanderers. And so the word that he uses here is actually the Greek word planetai, which is where we get our uh, name or our word for planets. But he says they're like wandering stars. They don't stick to home base. Instead of staying where they were put to light up the universe, they wander, they meander, they're aimless. It's a Jewish way of saying they're not fulfilling their purpose, even though now we know how planets have their own purpose in God's creation. Okay, verse 14, as the cycle continues, back to the Old Testament, or is it? Verse 14 reads this way. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they've committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Okay, is Enoch the seventh from Adam in your Old Testament? Well, there's an Enoch in there. But do you have this quote in your Old Testament? Some of you should be getting the idea by now. This guy Judas pulls from a lot of sources, and not all of them are in our Old Testament, right? Okay, does anybody know where this quote comes from? Yeah, is it in your footnotes? You got it in your study Bible? Is that the Faith Life Study Bible app? No, it's something different? Okay, good. Yeah, it's the book of First Enoch. Now, in this case, this is a book that's part of the Apocrypha. This is part of the collection of Jewish books that they really respected and honored pretty well, uh, but aren't part of our Old Testament. And so the book of First Enoch has an interesting history. A couple of years ago, there was a movie that came out about Noah, but it didn't seem very much like the Noah that we've known. Did anybody see this movie about Noah where there was big rock monsters that came down to the earth and people that snuck on board the ship to try to like keep the human race alive their own way? Okay. Well, there was a lot of like Christians screaming at the time saying, this isn't accurate. This is not what the Bible says about Noah. And that was true. It's not what the Bible says about Noah. But it is what the book of First Enoch says about Noah, at least in large part with the typical Hollywood dramatization that always accompanies these stories. 
And so the book of 1st Enoch is interesting because it was so important to Jews and it was often cited by them for historical reasons and for theology. And yet again, it's not in our Bible. And here you've got Judas who is well-learned and well-studied and has got the Holy Spirit because this book is inspired and he's quoting from something that we wouldn't have expected. But he's arguing in a very good Jewish fashion and he's arguing in a way that they understand in a way that would be striking to them in their life setting. These are stories that still mattered to them. Imagine if in one of the sermons or classes I used an illustration from an American folktale, something that taught a moralism. Uh, maybe we used in a sermon the, um, what is it, the tortoise and the hare, right? The tortoise and the hare. And I would refer to them as if they had been real, or I would refer to them because all of you understand the moral impact of the story. Well, we don't really know here whether Judas actually was inspired or believed or knew that Enoch really did prophesy this, or if it works the way a lot of like American folktales would in a Jewish setting, where he says, you remember, Enoch says this, and so we all should learn from it. But the point is here, for the sake of, of Jude, he's using something that connects with this audience, that makes an emotional impact for them. It's a story that they know and he says, see the Lord's coming with thousands of thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and convict them of all the ungodly acts they've committed in their ungodliness. You notice Enoch has mentioned ungodliness as being a problem several times. One of the problems they're dealing with in the current situation and the defiant words that sinners have spoken against him. Okay, now we're going to finish up going through these patterns uh, right now. Yeah. We're actually going to finish them next week. I didn't realize that we were going a little bit over. You guys feel free to tell me if that happens. I repent. So next week, or two weeks from now, what we're going to do is we're going to pick up in verse 16. And before we go on to talking about some of how we can use this book in our modern setting, I'll finish discussing the last two cycles of this pattern and the way that Jude goes back and refers to these stories. And then we'll pull some principles out of it. Okay, um, we're about to have an invitation and a song and a communion opportunity, so I'll turn that over to you right now, Corey.